chapter, where are we? Why is my Bible in Romans 5? I don't know. Must have been there last week. That means I didn't read Romans 6 once this week. But we'll read it today. Romans chapter 6, we're going to get into this. Very, again, as I mentioned earlier, very applicable, uh, very like rubber meets the road kind of chapter. We've been talking a lot about positional Christianity, where our position is in Jesus, how we're secure in Jesus, how we're saved in Jesus, how Jesus has done everything for us. And so now we come to this very practical chapter in the book of Romans, where it talks about in light of our position, now what is our response to that? And so some very practical rubber meets the road, kind of now what you do with your Christianity. And so it's uh, just an awesome chapter. I've entitled it Dead to Sin and Alive to Christ. And we're going to see what that means as we go through this chapter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this time in your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would open your word up to us. Bless this time as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 6. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 20 as an introduction. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Where sin abounded, where there was sin Grace came and, and it just overwhelmed it. it. It just flooded it. Grace just came and it just superseded. It just overtook it. It'd be a grain of sand in the vast ocean. One grain of sand is sin. The ocean of grace came and just consumed it. And that's an incredible thing. And the Pharisee mind of Paul now begins to go into his lawyer mode And he says, whoa, 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 questions are going to come from people. If it's a grain of sand of sin in comparison to this ocean of grace that God has, then why don't we just go ahead and maybe sin? Because the more we sin, the more grace God can give us. And God is glorified in grace, right? And that's kind of as he goes through this chapter, he begins to answer some of those difficult questions. Romans chapter 6 verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound. Grace, as I have mentioned before, is unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor. I like the way somebody identified it or defined it. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor. Here's a personal problem with grace that I've discovered in my life. You can't expect grace. You can't think that you deserve grace. You can't think that somehow the things that you do merit grace. It's undeserved. It's unearned. And it's unmerited favor. And God knows when he needs to give you grace. And God also knows when he needs to chasten you. He also knows when he needs to rebuke you. He also knows when he needs to correct you. So we need to be very careful that we don't come to a place where we're expecting grace, expecting grace, expecting grace. 
Because it's unmerited, it's unearned, and it's undeserved. And when we get it, there should be this overwhelming overflow of thankfulness that we've received it. It, it should, that's the result. That is the outcome. That is the byproduct of receiving this thing called grace in your life. There should be in your heart just this overwhelming, thank you, Lord. Wow. I deserve the ticket and I didn't get it. I deserved this and I, I didn't receive it. I should have gotten that, but your grace covered it. The minute you begin to expect grace, it begins to get really sloppy. It, it begins to just, it, it, oh, it's just, it's an ugly thing. So be very careful of that. Verse 2 goes on to say, certainly not. Are we going to continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? The certainly not is the strongest two words in the Greek uh, for no. It'd be like our English, I guess, um, heck no, or no way, or what are you thinking? Like just hardcore no, no, we're not going to continue to sin that grace may abound. Certainly not. No way. Unheard of. Don't even strike it from your lips. You know, something like that. So, no, we're not going to continue to do that. Why? Because we've died to sin, it says in verse 2. And we who have died to sin, are we gonna, how are we going to live uh, any longer in it? Verse 3 goes on to say, Or do you not know that as many as a... Of us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Um, The baptism that he speaks of, you can look at it both ways, symbolically or or literally. Um, baptism, baptism, physical baptism. You're, 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 it's, it's a picture of Jesus Christ in his death as you, are, you go into the water, his burial, and his resurrection as you come out of the water or baptized into the body of Christ. The word baptism means immersed. And so as a Christian, you are immersed into the body of Christ. You are placed into the body of Christ. And when you do that, there's more than just this symbolic thing of now I'm a Christian and everything is is just symbols. There's this practical aspect of you are identifying with the death of Jesus Christ as he died and was resurrected to new, new life. So your old life is dead in Christ. Corinthians would say that, behold, all things become new. Old things have passed away. And that speaks of that death, burial, and resurrection. The old you is to be crucified. It is to be put to death. The word in the Greek is, is defined as rendered inoperative. And so you still have that flesh that you carry around, and that flesh has desires and temptations and, and uh, a memory bank. But it is to be reckoned dead. And your life no longer lives as it did before. You no longer run the show. Jesus Christ is now your Lord in addition to your Savior. And He determines what you are to do with your life. And He desires to guide you and lead you lovingly. And you are to now follow as He is your master. 
And so the significance of this chapter and what Paul is saying is awesome, that we are relating to Jesus Christ in baptism. We are to be dead and now alive, dead to the old things, dead to our ways, dead to our desires, and alive to Jesus Christ and what he has for us in this world. And again, this is gigantic. Notice what kind of power is available to walk in newness of life. That same exact power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is available to you to do the things that God is calling you to do. Impossible things. And yet that same resurrection power is available to you. My friend was receiving counsel for a struggle that he had. And he thought he had done a good thing by... His wife was going to be out of town for the weekend. And so he was going to bring one of the junior high schoolers over to spend the night at his house. And that junior high schooler was going to hold him accountable to make sure that he didn't get into things that he wasn't supposed to get into. And the counselor told him, my number one struggle is gambling. Do you know where the Lord put my office? In front of a casino. I face my greatest temptation on a daily basis as I drive to work and leave work. The desire to go into that place and to come, you know, to be able to go and gamble and do that thing that just, it grips me, it it just compels me. If the Holy Spirit is not enough to bring holiness in my life, then nothing will ever be enough. And so the Holy Spirit has to be enough. Do you realize that as a Christian, Jesus Christ dwells in your heart? Do you realize that your body now is the temple of the Holy Spirit? God dwells in you. And God wants to do a work from the inside out. And that's why it's important to be able to discern the voice of the Lord as opposed to all of the voices that we hear in the world. All of the voices in the world are telling us what we should do or what we shouldn't do. Learn to discern the voice of the Lord in your life and then do what God is calling you to do. He'll never overwhelm you. He'll never burden you. He'll, uh, his commandments will not be a burden, the Bible says in 1 John. Exactly what he tells you to do, you'll be able to do because God's commandments are God's empowerment. God will empower you to do exactly what he's calling you to do. We go on now in verse 5. For if we have been united together in likeness of his death, Certainly we also shall be in likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we, all, we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ Having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. 
For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That whole section, what it's saying is God has delivered you from the power of sin that sin had on your life. You are a slave. You will always be a slave. You will either be a slave to your own flesh and sin and death, or you will be a slave to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And as you continue to submit, and that's the key, that's the, the whole chapter could be summed up in one word, yield. Surrender. Let go and let God. But you have a free will. You still have a choice in the matter if that's how you're going to live your life. And so when you gave your life to Christ, you gave your life to Christ. You said, Lord, I'm no longer going to drive my life. I'm no longer going to take the steering wheel of life and, and, and kind of just navigate where I need to go. I am now, Lord, just going to hands off, get in the passenger seat, or for some of us, we have to get in the back seat because we're still too close to the steering wheel. I'm going to just get in the passenger seat and I'm going to let you run my life. I'm going to let you lead me. I'm going to allow you to guide me in my life. And whatever you want to do, Lord, I know it's going to be better than anything I could come up with. And the very interesting thing is, the Bible declares in Psalm 37, that as you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. God knows what you need. He knows what would bring you joy. He knows what would satisfy you and fulfill you. And I don't know, we're so intimidated sometimes to just fully surrender, to just let go and say, Lord, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to take you at your word. And as you do that decision by decision, moment by moment, day by day, you just kind of, you're able to reflect back on your life and watch what God can do with a yielded vessel an individual that is simply surrendered to the will of God. And what a blessing that is to just allow him to take just the reins. We're such controllers. We're just such, but but I'm scared, but I fear, but what if he, but what? You're going to give God your salvation, your eternal destiny, and then you're not going to trust him with the daily walk of where he wants to take you and lead you and guide you. Verse 14 said, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. There are many who think that through an obedience to the law, by doing the commandments, they're going to find themselves in heaven. And we learned in chapter 4 that actually if you're working for your salvation then you're adding debt to your life. And that's not favor with God. But if you just believe that Jesus Christ did for you what you could never do for yourself, then that grace is accounted to you as righteousness. The difference between religion and relationship, it always just, for whatever reason, it, just, it always sticks in my mind because I feel sorry for a group of individuals that are religious Because I look at the religious sacrifices that are being made and all God wants all along is just this personal relationship to be able to walk and talk with you, to hurt with you, to feel with you. He knows your pain. 
He knows what you struggle with. He just wants to love on you and guide you and lead you. And so that religion thing always just throws me off. Let me share some scriptures I was looking at this morning with you. One is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, it says in verse 5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. The church of Corinth was accusing Paul of maybe not being sent from God. And yet that same group of individuals that was in Corinth were individuals that came to Christ through Paul's ministry. And so he's saying, guys, you better evaluate this. If, if I'm not from God and I'm presenting God to you and you're claiming to be Christians through this ministry, are you disqualified because you're disqualifying me? But there's, a, there's, a, there's an admonition. Test yourselves to see if you belong to God. And so there's a challenge that goes out. Are we religious people or do we have this relationship with God? Uh, Revelations chapters 2 and 3 give an account of church history. If you read through that, it's pretty incredible. And so you have the apostolic church. And then you have the second century um, persecuted church, Smyrna. And then you just have these successive churches that kind of through history you see. And you have a last day's church in chapter 3 of Revelation. And these individuals in this last day's church are self-sufficient. It's almost like they've kicked Jesus out of the church and their account of themselves is they have need of nothing. They've clothed themselves with their own righteousness, with their own set of works and the things that they're doing. And Jesus' view of them is very different. He says, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and yet I say to you, you are wretched, miserable, blind, Naked, naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, clothes that your, the shame of your nakedness would be covered, so on and so forth. And so everything that we need has to come from God and the hand of God as we receive it. And it's not in the things that we do, but it's found in what Jesus has done for us. And again, that contrast between being religious and having a relationship with God it is what he's looking for. Let's go on in Romans chapter 6. In verse 15, the Bible says, What then shall we, be, what shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Again, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So what is the master passion of your life? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What is on your mind when you go to bed at night? What would you do if all restraints were removed if you knew you would never be caught? Do you serve sin or do you serve righteousness? I found this um, little poem. It's anonymous. Let me read it to you. It's, It's entitled, You Call Me Lord. 
You call me Lord and respect me not. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk with me not. You call me life and choose me not. You call me wise and listen to me not. You call me shepherd and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me might and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. You call me merciful and thank me not. You call me savior and praise me not. You call me son of God and worship me not. If I condemn you, then blame me not. And it's just an account of, again, the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. It's hard to imagine that condemnation is going to come from God because we hear of God's grace, we hear of his love, we hear of his forgiveness. But judgment is coming. And a lot of churches will stray away from speaking about hell or damnation or judging or judgment. But judgment is coming upon a Christ-rejecting world. And I think the most deceived people or the most, um, uh, I don't know, just sad people are going to be those who are deceived. Individuals who were doing religious things but didn't have this relationship with the Lord. And, and I never want anybody within uh, my voice and my opportunity to be able to share, be self-deceived. You can't be good enough to be accepted by God. That is something that God just wants to give you as a free gift. But once you surrender your life to the Lord and name the name of Christ as Christian, Jesus owns you. He bought you. And he has a plan for your life and he wants that plan enacted. He wants you participating with that plan. And moving in the direction that he has for you. And my encouragement again is surrender. If somebody were to take a gun, a loaded gun, and come up from behind and and put it in your back, and you knew, you knew that that was a gun, and they said, put them up. You got a lot of options. But one of the best options, I would imagine, is just surrender. (sighs) Whatever, whatever. Whatever material thing you, what do you need? What do you, what do you want? I got, I got keys and I got, I got about $1.25. What do you want? It's yours. What do you want? Because no material thing is worth the life here. You got a gun to my back. I realize I'm, I'm outmanned here. I, okay. It's a surrender. You're just going to simply surrender. And that's what God is calling us to do in this chapter. He's saying, I just want you to surrender your life to me. And I want you to place it in the palm of my hand. And I want you to know that I have a plan for you. And that as I lead you and guide you, I simply want you to just by faith walk in obedience step by step in touch and in tune with that plan that I have for you. And that's Christianity. There's no rocket science kind of thing. The beauty I love about being used by God is He is not a respecter of persons. And so opportunities will come up to serve God. And God's not looking for the brightest, the sharpest, you know, the one with the most money, the, the one with the best kicks, you know, the one that can do whatever. Yesterday at the orphanage, we played Simon Says, Simon Dice. 
And, and here's Simon, and I don't hardly speak Spanish, but I'm doing Simon Says in Spanish, and we're just having fun. And I look at the, just the comedic relief of my God to take a knucklehead and just say, go across the border and just play with these kids. And we had fun. And that's our God. He wants to use us to do simple things like that, just to be an extension of himself. And it blesses me to no avail. Let's wrap this up as we continue on. Verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you, delivered, you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In Christ you are set free to no longer sin. Sounds like blasphemy, but it's not. Let me read you Second, First uh, John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So as a non-Christian, you're a slave to sin. Can't help but sin. You're going to sin. There's nothing you can do. Slave to sin. When you give your life to Jesus Christ and God now kind of takes residence within you, you are set free from the power of sin. When you sin as a Christian, it's a conscious choice. You're doing it because that's what you want to do. Because God is faithful to convict you. God is faithful to let you know that shouldn't go to that place. You shouldn't be doing that thing. You shouldn't say those words that are about to come out of your mouth. Oh, you said them. And so now we are fighting God to sin. Now, if we say we have no sin, the Bible says we're lying and the truth is not in us. But if we, on, in contrast to that, let me read it because that's a very important point that I was thinking about in this chapter. It's in 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him, verse 6 says, this is 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the two contrasting scriptures is 8 and 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. The difference is, as a Christian, you're not sinless. You don't become sinless. But as a Christian, you should sin less. And less and less as you mature in the Lord. You're not going to come to a point in your life where you'll become sinless until we go home to be with the Lord. We will struggle with sin forever until we go home to be with the Lord. And so we're not sinless when we come to the Lord, but we're definitely not habitually partaking, practicing of sin. And that's an important key. It's not a habitual lifestyle of sin. If you look at the great men in the scriptures and what made them great, 
I don't know what you can call it, but it was like they kept a short account with God. So from the point that they made a mistake, they sinned. They were able to get back right with the Lord. Why was David a man after God's own heart? He had sinned horribly, a tremendous level of sin as we look at it and study it. And yet a man after God's own heart. Why? Short account with God. And that short account was probably eight months. But in that eight months, you get two rich psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And you see what is happening on the interior of that man's life. You see, wow, God's hand was heavy upon him. His bones waxed old. And yet, blessed is the man whose, whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered. You see this dynamic that's taking place. So very important for us that we don't um, think that we've reached you know, sinless perfection, but at the same time that we don't walk a lifestyle of habitual sin. I was thinking about this in marriage yesterday as we're coming back. Um, I had snapped at my wife as we were driving back, and I thought, man, what a, you know, that's just a struggle for me. And I think of just everything that she's been in my life and all that she's done and how she's put up with me and, and my horrible mouth and um, how she's not worthy of this. She's not deserving of that. She's my queen. She's my princess. She's to be elevated on a pedestal. 25 years of marriage in May, we will be married. And I, I just look at our whole life, and she's worth and worthy of so much more from me. And as I looked at that, I thought, wow, you know, Lord, help me. That's, that's just, I repent. I, I, forgive me, Lord, that, that sweet words would come out of my mouth for her. And I was thinking, as deserving as she is, yesterday on the way up, we heard a testimony of a young lady for seven years in her marriage, her husband had been cheating on her. For seven years in this young lady's life of marriage, her husband was not faithful. And God had brought her to a place through a set of circumstances to forgive her husband. And as I look at that, I think, well, my wife is deserving of so much more, and yet. Okay, what about an individual who doesn't have a spouse that's deserving? What about... And then I was reminded of her and how she said, Lord, I'm going to listen to you. Lord, I need a sign. And this was cool because as I was listening to the testimony, I remember the whole story because I was there watching it unfold before my very eyes. It's one of my very best friends. And she said, Lord, if this is from you, I'm going to be Gideon in this point. I need a sign. And she's weeping and sobbing on her bed. Lord, have my two-year-old son come up to me and give me a kiss if you want me to stay in this marriage. And she said that her son walked over to her and planted a kiss on her lips. She said it was the most tender, tender kiss that she'd ever received. And she just wept more and more, and she knew what God was calling her to. And guys, that right there is Christianity. That's Christianity. As much as God convicted me of the way that I speak to my wife and how I need to love her with my words, that's Christianity. But when the rubber meets the road, this woman who had been betrayed for seven years had a choice to make, an opportunity to hear from God and then, through the power of God, obey it 
She didn't have to, right? She could have said, hey, I have grounds for divorce. I can get out of this thing. But she was in touch with the Lord. She allowed the Lord to do what he wanted to do. And through simple, not easy, simple obedience, now they are three years removed and their marriage is better than ever. Are there challenges? Absolutely. Is it going to be difficult? Probably until they go home to be with the Lord. God has restored her husband. He is a pastor, serving God, being used tremendously by God. And that's the story of God. God takes that which is broken and he fixes it. He takes that which the world looks at as useless and he resurrects life from it. What looks dead, God says, I can bring life out of that. What looks like ashes, something that is burned and useless, God says, nope, I'm going to resurrect beauty from ashes. And that is the fingerprint of God. Nobody can touch that. As you look at that, you say, wow, only God, the miracle of God, can something like that happen. Let's wrap up. I said that once, but I'm a pastor. We left off on verse 18. Verse 19 says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And so the way that you sinned in the past, why don't you just now turn that around and serve God? And for some of you, you know what? Maybe you haven't sinned a lot. To much who is given, much is expected. I had a a vault I had a mountain of sin that God cleared and forgave me of and my life is indebted to him because of that. So I don't know where you were. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your life represented before you came to the Lord. But until God takes me home, I have vowed to just, Lord, here I am such as I am. If you desire to use me, I'm indebted to you for the forgiveness that you've granted me. Until you take me home, Lord, me and you, let's do this. Verse 19, oh, I said that, verse 20, or no? Yes? 20? For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 21 is an awesome verse. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And as I retraced my life and my footsteps without Jesus, everything was just death, death, death. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The price tag for sin always is, always has been, death. There's this struggle, this battle between the flesh and the spirit. God is faithful as a Christian. And here's kind of a good identifying mark if if you're a Christian. If you can sin and there's nothing there, like you just... Your only fear is you just want to get away with it and your only fear is if you get caught, you're going to be embarrassed or go to jail or whatever. Um, good chance that you're probably not a Christian. 
Because God is not going to let you get away with things. On the inside, there should be this alarm that is just screaming, just this conviction that is just kind of... Just get louder and louder that you're doing something wrong. Pay attention. Stop. Go the other way. Warning. Warning. That's just a good sign. And so a lot of people will come for counseling and they'll say, oh my gosh, I'm just so guilty because God not worthy of God and I'm probably not a Christian. Why? Oh, because I just feel so bad about this thing that I did. Well, that's good. That's good you feel bad. That's guilt. God put it there for a reason to drive you back to him, to ask for forgiveness, to receive what he has for you, to just, again, surrender to his will. So that's a good thing. This, this struggle between the flesh and the spirit is going to take place. In Galatians, the Bible teaches that flesh is on, uh, first on the scene to war against the spirit. And I think that's, a, that's an interesting little just dynamic that's taking place there. Opportunity is going to come. Flesh is going to come and try to come in the way of that opportunity to serve God. The flesh is warring against the spirit. God is always willing, but the flesh and its appetites and its desires is always going to be on the scene first, to war, to fight against that struggle. That's a good struggle, though. Give in to the spirit. Yield, actually, to the spirit. Surrender. Illustration, a mother visits her son in his new apartment. As they sit down to dinner, he explains that Julie is nothing more than his roommate. Five days later, he writes her a letter. Mom, thanks for coming for dinner. It was nice to have you over. I'm not saying you took it, but ever since you left, we can't find the silver candle holders. P.S. I love you. Mom writes back, son, thanks for having me over for dinner. I'm not saying that Julie is nothing more than your roommate, but if she was sleeping in her own bed, you guys would have found the silver candle holders by now. P.S. I love you too. Bible declares, know this, your sin will find you out. And again, I, I share that to say to you that as we go through this book of Romans, we're going to get to chapter 8, and we're going to see, as it says in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Is your sin finding you out? Is your attitude finding you out? Are your actions finding you out? That's the way of God. If they are, that's a good thing. Smile. God is doing a work from the inside out. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you revealed that to me. Thank you that you, that you showed me that. Wow, it was a little uncomfortable, a little embarrassing, whatever, right? But thank you. And you confess that. You confess that. A broken and a contrite heart. These, God, you will not despise. That word contrite, I think it means whatever it means. It means a confessing heart. Just a heart that is constantly communicating with God. Wow, Lord. And it's not so that we could just be these just, you know, down and out Christians that are walking around. I think it's more that we be more dependent upon him, more thankful to him, just acknowledging that we need him. And those are good things. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Romans chapter 6. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for that sweet conviction Conviction drives us back to you, Lord. Condemnation is from the devil, and it drives us away from you, Lord. And I pray that there wouldn't be nobody, Lord, who is condemned. And if they feel condemned, Lord, I pray that they would turn that around and be driven to you.
recognizing, Lord, that you love them, that they are accepted in the beloved, that you want to continue to grow them up in the things of God. And Lord, it's awesome because we're all experiencing this very same thing at the very same time. We're all as children of God being raised together, growing up in the grace and knowledge of your word. And for that, Lord, we thank you. We're not orphans that you've just abandoned. We're orphans that you have taken in. And we can call you Daddy. We can call you Abba Father. And for that, we thank you, Lord. We have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, continue to do that work behind the scenes and strengthen us, Lord, to do the things that you call us to do. Thank you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.